Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. All right, John, so good to be at it again after a long hiatus. Let's begin with our usual prayer. We pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we can maybe talk more about the hiatus later. Want to do that now before the devotion? I mean, uh, life yeah, goes maybe, on and we just got busy. Yeah. No, no big story yeah. there, but... Yeah, pr- pretty much that's about it. <laughs> we <laughs> both got busy. I think uh, you had the school year come up. I was... Uh, I had to I had to move. We got kind of kicked out of our old apartment because there was... Oh, there was some, some situation with the new ownership needing to remodel stuff. And so they kind of forced us to not renew our lease. I had to move and then got... Uh, very busy with uh, with work, doing more internal work for a production company that I work closely with. Um, and yeah, now doing some stuff with virtual production, those big LED walls that you see sometimes they're making a lot of shows on now. So that's some fun technology. Um, what else? It really has flown by the last nine months a year yeah, I know. it has not felt very long at you all know, i have to tell you it seems like our audience has grown past my two kids <laughs> because <laughs> it's crazy and my conference is doing stuff and people will come up yeah. to me and hey when are you guys recording again and That's keep, neat. keep yeah. up the awkward endings and all that kind of stuff so well, that'll be i don't know if we're that'll be, don't want to push ourselves too far <laughs> no i don't but uh yeah it's we we love doing this it's just we had no yeah. no reason or intention of backing off, but yeah, I've lived some life too. You know, my trip to Israel and Breckenridge, I told you about, it's just been a summer of just beautiful things getting to see. And now we're in the routine yeah. of school, like you said, and mm-hmm. maybe back at it like much more frequently. We'll see. We have a, yeah, uh, a topic lined up that could last us a lot of episodes, you know, just getting into Christian apologetics and from the standpoint of communication, ultimately. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I'm excited for that. It'll be, um, I mean, we have this week, I think we have two two time slots booked out. So hopefully we can get, make both of those happen pending any I hope so. other circumstances. And then maybe we can make it more frequent, like uh, once a month. That's what we said. Sort of, sort of deal. Back um, in the day. So, yeah, like we, we committed to a long time ago. And <laughs> then, so, it was a soft commitment. Um, so <laughs> let's uh, yeah. have a devotion. Are you ready for that? Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, okay. So the broadest definition possible, probably, of Christian apologetics is, I just like to say, defending Christian truth at sites of struggle. So in the places out there beyond the sanctuary where it is questioned and challenged. So we'll say more about definition ultimately, but that's, you know, kind of a big picture thing. And that made me think of this verse from um, Psalm 22. So Psalm 22, you know, is like a view of the cross from a thousand years before the time of Jesus. In the poem of David, it starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Soon it has the line, this just makes you think of Good Friday. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. 
Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So if you didn't know this was a psalm from 1000 AD, you would think you're just reading a passion account. So you get to the part where he's surrounded by evil men, bones pulled out, pulled out of joint, dried up and thirsty, his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. They divide my garments, the psalmist says. They cast lots for my clothing. And then this line it says, evil men surrounded me. <clears throat> they have pierced my hands and my feet. So by changing one letter in the Hebrew, in the text we have from starting, let's say, 850 AD, you can change one letter to a similar looking letter, and instead you get evil men have encircled me like a lion, my hands and feet. Now you can say, what sense does that even make? But that's what you see in the earliest complete Hebrew manuscript, like a lion, my hands and feet, not, not, not they've pierced my hands and feet. Until 2005, it was possible to argue that the Greek translation was changed by some pious Christians and a pious Christian fraud after the resurrection of Jesus, of course. Um, a little slip of the pen to get crucifixion into that ancient prophecy. And some can say that's where Pierce comes from. I'm sorry, that's where, yeah, that's where Pierce comes from instead of like a lion. So there are articles, I have them in front of me. Psalm 2217, More Guessing is the title by Strawn, 2000. Um, <laughs> circling around the problem again, <laughs> Swenson, 2004. And the problem, of course, is you can't have a crucifixion described in, in those terms in 1000 AD, or even two or 300 years before, if you want to make that assumption about the age of the manuscript or the text. So um, in 2005, a scrap of Hebrew was found in the vicinity of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, with the reading, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And so there are no more articles about this. It can no longer be disputed that this is what the prophecy of David actually said. And that there was this description, my hands and feet pierced, uh, centuries before the Romans invented crucifixion. So it's this really spine-tingling prophecy. So what Psalm 22 is about for me is really how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That, that he would do this for me and for you. Um, one writer writes about the pain of abandonment, how it would depend on how long the relationship lasted and how significant it was. So your coworker of the last six months abandons you, hurts a little bit. Your spouse of 30 years abandons you, that's, abandons you, that's devastating. There are really no words for the abandonment of the Son of God by the Father after an eternity of, of a kind of bond and connection that goes beyond mystery in the Trinity. There's no words for this. Um, same writer wrote about the fact that forgiveness is painful because you want to vent yourself on the other person and hurt them, but you hold that back. And for that time of holding it back and working it out within yourself, it's just very, very painful. And just by, maybe by a dim analogy, the fact that God took his righteous wrath and kept it within himself between the Father and the Son it's just a way to get at not just the agony, but why this was why this was necessary for our sake that the son should suffer for us and suffer for our grief and shame. So that's what it's about. But what we're saying in this episode and then maybe several to come is Christian apologetics comes in if someone says, Well, he didn't say that. And and it's like that's where it comes in the door where you, we might talk about evidence. We might talk about human reason and sifting what we know um, <clears throat> from, from what we don't know and carving out that space. So, because you're not going to knock Psalm 22 out of my hands. I'm just not going to let you do it. And so there's a devotional thought and there's an intro to our topic of 
just no one's going to take these Christian truths away from us. And it may require us thinking in these terms that we call um, Christian apologetics. So anything that puts on your mind, John, anything that triggers for you? Yeah, I think I I looked through uh, a book that you recommended called uh, The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable by F.F. Bruce, which is, as you had put it to me, a pretty foundational text for for the how that relates to the New Testament documents. And so it, the Dead Sea Scrolls, if I recall correctly, were mostly Old Testament. It was Old entirely, Testament. Entirely Old Testament. Entirely. So that's, yep. that's the part that's interesting to me that I was new information to me. One, I didn't know that people were disputing the psalm in the first place, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but also just the, you know, logically putting together the fact that this was, you know, the error that was proposed to be, inserted by these pious Christians after the fact was actually probably the reverse. The opposite. Absolutely. Where the, the actually the opposite uh, mistake happened, which would lead it to be thought of as uh, like a lion instead of uh, the piercing. So that, yeah, that's, that's fascinating to me that, and what a blessing the, that find is. It's interesting. Um, I mean, I, I think I've taken it for granted because they were discovered what in the eighties? No, the, uh, more mid-century, last century. Okay, yeah, around 1950, roughly. The fifty. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've I've always just taken that for granted, but to to see uh, more clearly all of the new deductions that you can make, or how much stronger ground there is to stand on in terms of the the physical evidence that we have, the the legitimacy of the Old Testament texts is, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think of it as, so how does this help me? Uh, well, in that case, it would really be game-changing if that scripture could be proven to be <clears throat> a forgery. But in other cases, I think, you know, I don't really need resurrection apologetics to believe that Jesus was is alive because I, I believe that before I ever knew about the evidence. So there's almost like a psychological effect. It doesn't, I don't need it, but there's something still to edify me there. And we're getting way ahead of ourselves, which is awesome. Like, that's going to happen a lot probably because we're both yeah. pretty excited about this stuff. But we'll actually eventually zero in on resurrection apologetics as well as New Testament apologetics and Bruce. But yeah, mm -hmm. we're just setting the table now, which is, which is, you know, great. Maybe we should say more about the definition of apologetics because it's we're not, I don't think in our circles all completely agreed on what we mean. And so... Let me just put a couple out there, and if you have responses to them too, just jump in. So for a long time in our circles, we were kind of content with negative apologetics. We feel comfortable there, but nothing more than that. So negative apologetics would be using human reason to dismantle the charges against Christianity. And so it's like saying, how much sense does it really make to deny God because of evil? They'd be an example. So we're not supporting our truth with claims. We're just saying, how much sense does that make? And in that example, what typically happens is you're saying there can't be a God of perfect love and perfect power because he wouldn't do this or that thing. Uh, and so what you're doing is you're taking some transcendent, absolute moral standard against which you're saying God can't exist. And so you're really kind of appealing to God. You're appealing to the reality of God to make the claim against him. And so this doesn't help the person with a broken heart by any means. They need something else. But 
philosophers agree that that particular argument just isn't logically it just isn't, consistent. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't stand. Yeah. yeah. So th- it's called negative apologetics because referring to argumentation, correct? The stance, the negative stance exactly. where you're, you're sort of you're standing on uh, the the person with the refutation needs to they have the burden of proof to show that you know Christianity isn't real or that God doesn't exist, and so you're exactly kind of just right. you can sit back and you have this you know strong defense, which is it, it is the easier thing to defend in terms of argumentation, but putting the burden of proof on other people might not be sufficient in all cases, and then. It, yeah. it opens the door to some other things. Or what, why do you think that, why, why what is it, do you think that uh, it was negative apologetics only, at least in our circle? <clears throat> it was being uncomfortable about what role we're giving to human reason and what role we're giving to evidence. Uh, mostly, mm-hmm. the, mostly the human reason part, because there's a nervousness that <clears throat> we are going to smuggle in a false view of faith that... Um, Jesus isn't true until I've proven him or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm going to think more about that. I think that's the main thing. Got it. If, if Christian truth meets our minds in a collision with anything we would ever naturally think and live, then turning to reason could have the weakness of, well, someone smarter comes along. Someone has another argument of reason against us, and what have we just done? You know, so uh, Kierkegaard called apologetics... Uh, Second Judas kiss because it, it, he was saying it can purport to be on the side of Jesus, but it really is betraying him because it's smuggling in an idea about truth and about reason that is non non Christian, and that is that human reason is the source of absolute truth. So you smuggle in as you argue for Jesus in a way that depends on reason. You smuggle in that idea about reason. Mm-hmm. That it, it gets you to absolute truth, and it just absolutely does not. It's flawed. It's 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 arrogant. It has a, I say, yeah. a gaping red wound in its side. It's fallen, and so we don't give that role to reason. And so we're trying to find. So what is the role then, or what kind of apologetics can we safely do? That's the issue. I see. So it's almost the reverse of um, dismantling the argument that you had brought up earlier from the from the other side. Which is just logically inconsistent to to make that happen from the Christian perspective now. Right. That's been very comfortable, just to say, how much sense does that make? So here's the thing that you say is between you and Christian truth. Let's just look at it. And I mean, there's limitations to that for sure. I, I would think about what Kukul wrote um, about just putting a stone in the shoe. If this thing for you is just so taken for grantedly, self-evidently true, well, let's just cause you to just walk away questioning maybe maybe it's not so solid as you thought it was so that'd be a role they would probably call it pre-evangelism just to do something about the psychological barrier and then we take the conversation back to our usual way of witnessing which is valid and this is all good so you deny god because of pain do you realize all you've done is make pain worse all you've done is make it meaningless that's what you've just done so that's a little bit of reason reasoning just applied to that particular question. I think a kind of safe reasoning that isn't really reasoning toward the truth. It's just so you're gonna hang your head on this, really? You just you just made this a devastating problem. You've just taken away every chance it can be redeemed. You've taken away every bit of hope there can ever be when I'm suffering. So 
nice job, you know? So mm-hmm. uh, it's like the story of a pastor and an atheist used to love to sit and talk by the fire with their brandy snifters. And there's a knock on the door. They would love to talk about this stuff all, all, all day long. The knock on the door and the maid answers. This is an old story. And she walks in the room and says to the pastor that what happened, a, a woman showed up whose daughter had died. And the pastor turns to his atheist friend and says, you want to handle this or should I? Which is a way of getting at, you know, atheism has nothing helpful to say about this. It just really has nothing. It's bankrupt. So we're not saying the problem isn't a really deep problem. We have to think through very carefully and honestly and not minimize the pain that people are talking about. <clears throat> but so negative apologetics is just things like that that can help us peel back the surface of the objection and see, does this, is this a valid reason to dismiss Jesus or not? And of course, mm-hmm. it never is. Never is. So there's yeah. definition one. Um, so there's another one. I'm looking for my notes here. So <clears throat> full disclosure to our listeners, um, I have, I'm no expert on apologetics. I have um, presented this to audiences anyway, <laughs> although I'm no expert. And mm-hmm. just to give our conversation some kind of structure, we're going to meander a lot, but we do have... Uh, my PowerPoint's kind of in front of us just to sort of move along eventually. And so I'm looking at looking at uh, my slides here. So another definition of apologetics is more the academic one. And so some who do apologetics in our circles, this is what they're really doing. Um, they're asking, how does the discipline of Christian theology operate within other academic disciplines uh, um, at the academy? So it'd be like saying, what does the psychologist who's a Christian uniquely see? What does the historian who's a Christian uniquely see? Or the scientist or, or whatever it might be, the philosopher. And so ac- apologetics as an academic discipline is not what I do. It's not really how I approach it, though I respect it very much. So that'd be a second definition. Um, how would you have defined apologetics? Is that fair to ask? Or how, how have you thought about it before we started talking about this seriously? Well, I think my view of apologetics, my definition of apologetics has rather changed over time as I've been in Christian schools for most of my life and then transitioning out of that now into the real world, working mostly in the secular realm. Uh, it used to be even maybe in grade school, apologetics was almost synonymous with just refuting evolution as a as the the primary battleground on which you like discuss your faith. That's that's kind of how I viewed it, especially you know maybe late grade school, early high school, and even into MLC. I remember, I think when I was at MLC, there was a was it John Ham had a debate about Ken Ham Ken Ham. I think that was the, with Bill Nye, Bill Nye, the science guy. So they had their discussion of, um, of apologetics. I don't remember very much of that, but at that time, I remember that that was my understanding of what apologetics was. And so it used to be just refuting all of the, you know, the evidence against Christianity that people had. And now it's become, you know, shifted more towards giving a reason for the hope that I have. And being able to answer the question. Because I think what's what's happened is it, uh, we used to be taught, how do you share your faith with someone? And usually the the ideal 
the, the person you're talking to is going to be default, not receptive to the things that you're going to say. They're, you're, it's kind of like you're knocking on the front door and there's a no soliciting sign and you're still trying to share your faith. And so how do you, how do you navigate that situation? Whereas now it, maybe it's just a, you know, a function of where our culture is, or maybe it's just my age or, or the, the realm that I'm in. But generally I'm finding that people are very curious. They're, they're willing to ask questions of, uh, you know, what, what do you actually believe? And so then it becomes, you know, instead of banging on a door where someone doesn't want to be bothered, they're actually inviting you in. And so that's kind of my view now is like when you're in the living room and you're getting to talk about what you believe with people who are genuinely curious about what that is, here's, here's what you say. So that's, that's kind of how it, it's changed. And, and I'm not sure if that's, that's the same everywhere, but in my experience, that's, that's been kind of how my view of apologetics or how, how I would define apologetics has changed, which is, I, I think it's a very welcome change. It sets up a couple opportunities. I think we'll get into more of the, like the nuances of that. And in a, in a later discussion, as we start talking more about those specific refutations, but, um, you know, in the meantime, it's, I think overall, maybe easier to share your faith it, today than it was 20 years ago. That's an interesting premise. <clears throat> and that's really encouraging too. I know of some research that I don't know the exact number, but it suggested that something close to 80% of people report that they would be happy to have this conversation with a Christian. So a survey of non-Christians, happy to have the conversation. And here we are so tentative and afraid of the worst happening. And so there's a reason to be way more optimistic than that. And so that's great. I think that I heard John Lennox, the mathematician from Cambridge, I think, PhD, who's a apologist, say that very thing that when Peter says, be prepared to give an answer for those who ask you for the reason for the hope you have, he's assuming that the, the best outcome we can hope for is people asking us questions. Once they ask us questions, it becomes so much easier. And so what I think you do, I'm sensing you do, is you show a lot of curiosity in other people, how they mm -hmm. tick and what life means to them and so on. And then they reciprocate. Yeah. With the same curiosity, and that was that your own idea when you said invite you in versus knock on the door. That because that's uh, that's such a useful a, way to think about this. I well, I came up with the metaphor by you know looking up and glancing at the door that's right next to me in the house here. Um, and, but it, but it <laughs> well, seemed I'm like a, quoting you the rest yeah, of my life. I was life. also that's, looking that's for great. a uh, you know a different way to say. Um, you know, we, we talk about Kierkegaard all the time and the indirect communication sneaking in, you know, behind those watchful dragons, et cetera. So it's just another, mm -hmm. I think another way of saying that where, um, maybe it's a little more relatable, <laughs> uh, less ivory tower, <laughs> no, but it's, great. uh, what I like about your understanding of apologetics is that I hear you not making some hard distinction between apologetics and what is simple witness. And, um, this is what I say when I present, wherever I get to present on this, that I too would just simply make my goal to be more transparently Christian. Wear the t-shirt, whatever, Jesus loves me t-shirt, whatever it is, just wear that and signal in all kinds of ways in conversation um, who you are. Like, you know, I'm going to pray for you. You say, I'm going to pray for you. And we're just signaling 
who we are. It's the very thing Paul said when he said, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, because doors will open. And he says, pray that I'll go through the door, but doors will open mm-hmm. when I simply do that. So I think this is great stuff. Yeah, there's uh, uh, the downside, I think, of whether it's our culture or just, you know, that handful of people that I've, I talk to is being so curious is that it does carry with it a sort of, I don't want to call it postmodernism, but it does have those types of tendencies where their, their curiosity is stemming from uh, just a place of uh, an unending line of questioning. Everything mm-hmm. that comes in front of you, you just question it. And it, it's uh, you can tear things down pretty quickly, and very quickly the conversation divulges into you new. Know, what is knowledge? You know, and and very like very <laughs> philosophical types of things. I think there's even a you can go to there's a challenge on Wikipedia. I think you just go to any Wikipedia article and you just click the first Wikipedia link in the article mm-hmm. and see how how long it takes till it just goes to philosophy, <laughs> which is I think the yeah. the the online equivalent of just this, you know. I don't want to call it pointless, but um, it's it's not go uh, trying to achieve anything. It's just questioning what's in front of it. So that is initially curiosity, um, but very quickly it can divulge uh, into something that's rather difficult to talk about, especially when the person that you're talking to claims that they don't believe anything or actually doesn't believe anything or doesn't want to believe anything. It's 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 hard to have a like a level playing ground, and I don't mm-hmm. want to to completely discredit the value of questioning things. Um, there's a, I think some good. There there's there's value in in not taking everything for granted, as you said, like the negative apologetics that uh, our circles had kind of leaned on for so long, there is value to stepping outside of that and now approaching it from the other side of the argument. Still with all of the, the evidence and all of the, the, all of the beliefs still intact, but to actually examine this from the other, from the other side and say, you know, what, what does it look like over here? I think I find that in, you know, even, even outside of apologetics for, for Christianity, just talking about things like narrative critique uh, you can you can start to examine things that you might have otherwise taken for granted. Why why do we need narrative cohesion? Is there a narrative thread that winds through all of the stories that we talk about? Are there reasons to believe this as you start to deconstruct and reverse engineer a well-told story? Those are good questions to ask. But if the line of questioning just keeps going without trying to achieve something, it can it get it gets out of hand or it gets very tricky for me to to actually have a conversation and that that's where I still struggle. Cause I don't, I don't have a good answer, but I, I, I think I believe that there's even in the, even in the, you know, narrative critique realm, there's value to having a hill to die on in the conversation. I just don't know how to exactly say it yet, but, but there is, there is meaning there. And so there, there's, there's a little bit of it. it I don't want to completely discredit lines of questioning for lines of questioning's sake. But once it becomes just about usurping whatever thing is in front of you and deconstructing everything until it reduces down into nothing, whether that's the point or not, it it's a, it's tricky for me to navigate. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think narrative could be a 
great point of contact because you are arguing for there being meaning when you're talking about cohesion and asking, I would ask, why do we love redemption stories? Why are all, why are all the best stories redemption stories? And So <clears throat> I, I hear what you're saying, though, I, and I've had those conversations too. I feel like we <clears throat> kind of stray into the territory where now we're in the spirit's place where I really can retreat, fall back on the fact that my real objective is to get the Word of God and the, the true story of Jesus in a person's mind and put it up for their consideration, whether they ask a meaningless question in response or not, because no good can come unless I do that in that conversation. And so a part of it is just not getting talked out of the power of the tool that I have and have the conversation anyway, you know. Um, yeah, this is good stuff. Very good stuff. So... <clears throat> I like the distinction you're making between, or not, you're not making a distinction between witness and apologetics. I find that really, really useful. Um, I'll be quoting a few times my colleague, uh, Luke Thompson, because I've learned a lot from him in this area. And he just kind of talks about, am I speaking like the apostles? So all my nervousness about am I using reason or logic or evidence in the wrong way? Well, we'll get, we'll get to this, John, in our conversation, but if I'm talking the way the apostles talk, then I can be pretty confident that I'm using, for example, evidence in a proper way. So the one thing I've learned recently is to not think of faith in Jesus as being a thing that happens without any evidence. So when Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed He's not saying, Thomas, you just had some evidence. You touched my hands and my feet. Blessed are those who don't need any evidence. He's saying, blessed are those who will not have touched my hands and feet. But what they will have is the evidence of the apostles. So we are not without evidence. We have the evidence of things we haven't seen personally, but we have these New Testament texts from eyewitness accounts that are rock solid in their reliability. And so I've, I've stopped saying there's zero evidence because... It's just uh, yeah. kind of wrong-headed, to be honest. But uh, that's what I got out of the the Bruce book. I think one of the main takeaways was just the way that, especially the Gospels are written, and the testimony that they provide, and how that's you know shown in Acts as well. Their testimony was, you know, that was true. That was important to them. It doesn't. It's, it maybe it doesn't have as much meaning in our culture. It was like I said this. I know that I saw this. Whereas back then that was, that was a, no one just, no one refuted that there, there, it would have been very easy for, uh, the, the synagogue, the, the, the Jews of the time to refute that if that was, um, like, cause right now I think a lot of times that's what would happen in our day and age. You can just refute it. Mm-hmm. But the eyewitness testimony meant something. It was important and it was recorded as such in documents that were meant to be, you know, just pure historical truth. This is just an account of what happened. And then that, that the eyewitness would come in at that point and be, be that relevant was just, that was a little eye opening to me. Yeah. It's, it's Paul before King Agrippa saying King Agrippa (laughs) referring to the resurrection specifically, it didn't happen in a, in a corner. What he's saying is you can interrogate witnesses all day long. They're on every street corner in Jerusalem right now today. And so it's not mm-hmm. it's not what we might call maybe somewhat simplistically, but fideism would be saying 
you just got to believe. So someone asked me, why should I believe that Jesus is true? Well, you just got to believe. And that is a dismal mm-hmm. answer because you're sending, let's say, a young person up to college telling her, um, don't examine this stuff. Don't you dare. Don't you dare look at it closely because you'll be disappointed. <laughs> and and that, mm-hmm. that her faith feels that fragile to her when she is in that environment. It just hurts your heart to think about that because we can do way better than that. And I know you and I find it hard not to get ahead into all these specifics of evidence because it is so incredible and so compelling. But that's where I leave it just for now is that we can do better than saying you just got to believe because Mm -hmm. um, there's something really dangerous built into that way of thinking. Herod before Agrippa does not say, well, Agrippa, you just got to believe. No, no, no. Much the opposite. I know we'll get into 1 Corinthians 15 too, which is just this priceless chapter that when you think about what it's really saying, we'll get there eventually. You just walk away so confident um, in the things that matter the most. So with that, you've already kind of led us into the third definition of apologetics. And that is the one that doesn't really distinguish witness from what we're talking about. So I've always felt like, why would we not let the Apostle Paul's use of the word apologia in Greek, or Peter's use of the word apologia in Greek, why would we not let that affect um, how we're thinking of apologetics? So for Paul, it's, quote, he reasoned from Scripture in the Jewish synagogue, and that reasoning from Scripture is apologia. And for Peter, it was just his testimony in the face of, of the hostility of persecution, hostility toward his faith in, a, in an aggressive culture. He calls that apologia. So so just simply witnessing to what he knows about Jesus counts as well. And so that's why I end up with that broad definition of just sites, defending Christian truth that cites a struggle. Um, so there it is. There's number three, um, our definition. Mm-hmm. Um I'll go further while you're collecting your thoughts, or do you have a reaction to that one? No, I was just going to you know, ask our audience to write that down and then be ready for us to, <laughs> to go on as they're taking notes. So <laughs> yeah, these first, these first uh, uh, as we've kind of followed the loose outline of this, um, this topic, as it's been presented before, uh, at, the, at the beginning, it is probably more information heavy, just because we're defining the thing and we're you know, figuring out how, you know, the next topic will be, how does communication have a role in this and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have anything else to add. No, that's, at I'm the glad time. you said that though. Yeah. A term that I have coined myself is not that clever, not clever at all, in fact, but it is an apologetic of the word. So I remember years ago, it seemed that the question was, boy, how do you argue for Jesus when people just don't believe the Bible or they don't believe in truth or whatever. They don't believe in truth as even a category. How then do you argue as if under those circumstances, as if they're brand new circumstances, we need to come up with something else, some other way. And I think by an apologetic of the word, I want to think of ways to just maintain that clarity of, I'm just trying to get the word of God into your head so that something good can happen. And I remember yeah, I was. I listened to an interview. Oh gosh, it was some famous skeptical guy had a Christian on the show, and he's asking him all kinds of questions, not friendly questions, but the hardest ones you could think of to debunk the Christian truth of the man. Yeah, and 
The man said something like this at one of the questions. He said, that's a really good question. I wonder if you've heard about Psalm 22. So I meant to say that in the devotion, I just kind of forgot about this little thread, but that's what he said. He said, I wonder if you've heard about Psalm 22. And I yeah. says, no, what's Psalm 22? Okay, there's a question. <laughs> he says, what is Psalm 22? Well, it's this depiction of Christ on the cross from before crucifixion was even invented. It's a prophecy, you see. And I was just stunned by that. I thought in the space of about 15 seconds, he moved the ground of the conversation from what we might call epistemology, you know, how do you know what's true? And from the conversation about grounding truth, he moved it into the <clears> biblical <throat> text and he did it effortlessly. And now we're talking about Psalm 22 for Pete's sake. And I thought, wow. I mean, so the apologetic of the word mm -hmm. just says there's has, there has to be more ways to do that, to move the conversation where we want it to be, which is within the scripture. So the church, the church one writer says, Jamie Smith says, has its fundamental intellectual task is not how do we ground truth because we'll never do that to the satisfaction of the skeptic you know that this is true because god's word says mm -hmm. it we love that fact but he says the number one fundamental intellectual task of the church is hermeneutic which just says it's interpreting and living in our texts and bringing other people into the biblical text so that yeah. just that's what fascinates me and that fits our third definition of we're not going to somehow, as we do apologetics, now exclude the scripture, exclude the story, and think we need to argue on some other basis. Why would we, why would we do that is kind of my question. Yeah. It's almost an overthinking yeah. of what do you do about the fact that a person— Yeah. Yeah, as we said. So you, if you were to do apologetics from pure reasoning, it would just fall into the same pitfalls Every time. as before. And so you—, you, you combine those things as Paul did. And as I think the, you know, the man being interviewed to bring it into scripture, bring it to Psalm 22, you, you can now use that in combination with reasonable judgments you have about when that text was written and what was the common knowledge of crucifixion at the time. There wasn't any, you can make some logical deductions about that and you're not relying solely on reason, but reason doesn't uh, it's not all one or all the other. You can you can use those things together, and that's a gift. I think. And and that is actually a distinction we've had for a long time as Lutheran Christians. The the magisterial use of reason would be reason standing above the scriptures, telling us what's plausible or not, and so on. But the ministerial use of reason is the one that just uses reason within its bounds, not to establish mm -hmm. the mystery of the gospel or any such thing, but. But in the ways that we've been talking about, that there is a role there, yeah. and you can see the apostles speak that way. Yeah. I th th if you take reason just by itself, I mean, there's, you could say that there's a reason why philosophers still debate the question about what knowledge is. There's a, you know, there's mathematical proofs about you can't prove all of the axioms, if things aren't consistent, you have Gödel's theorems and, and things like that, where you know logical consistency breaks down when you take it to the farthest, the farthest corners. And so, reason by itself just falls apart. Right. But reason with with the scriptures, together with not all one, not all the other. Uh, that's the you know that beautiful marriage of what brings us to apologetics as yeah. the definition we've presented. And you know, so maybe to finish that thought, I'm not sure it's. That it's reasonable to recognize the limitations of reason 
And yes. you're right. Reason hits a brick wall trying to prove that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I mean, it actually really does. I'm not prepared to explain that because I'm not a philosopher. But, mm-hmm. but I, I have to go back to my mathematical axioms which one breaks down. Can't but, use reason yeah. to write a song. There's lots of things reason can't do. And so there's nothing unreasonable about recognizing, especially in terms of truth. So truth mm-hmm. comes in from the outside because truth has truth. I'm sorry, because reason is so limited. Truth comes in from the outside, mm-hmm. and that's what we call revelation. And it is self-authenticating yeah. as far as how the scriptures have kind of gotten a hold of us. And so we're not apologetic about and, that. Yeah, and maybe that'll come up when we're talking about how to handle some of those objections. The more of the I think it will in the further conversations where we can say, you know, maybe the fact that reason does have a, a brick wall that it runs into when you take it far enough is a, a good argument against some of those objections that people mm-hmm. would have. Or why would you use the, if this is your source of truth, reason, reason falls apart. And so that you get to the same types of things we were talking about at the beginning where the argument just doesn't hold up. It's not consistent right. enough. Chesterton, Chesterton has this thing, T.K. Chesterton, about a person who is a solipsist, someone that believes that only they exist or only they have mind, mm-hmm. uh, only they have the interior that they have and the inwardness that no one else does. And he says they get there by a path of reason that's unrefutable. There's no evidence you can offer that tells them that, that that's not true. And he just says they're living in this suffocating circle and it takes something other than reason to break in from the outside. So I just, I kind of like that analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 truth that you're not the center of the universe, you know, mm-hmm. something needs to bust in from the outside because reason can be very suffocating too. Yeah, I'm I'm eager for a conversation when we get to that that part because I I think there's a lot a lot of the people I talk to, you know, humans are just complicated apes and we're all just you know these base desires and you start getting into determinism and all sorts of all sorts of stuff where that just a that's what happens when you have this line of questioning that takes you into you can't a place where you can't actually prove anything. Mm-hmm. And so, what do you do to? How do you break that circle? How do you? Um. Yeah, I I don't know. I uh, I don't know yet. I have to think about it more. Yeah, I'm yeah I'm curious. I'm I'm eager for our conversation when we get there because we'll be able to uh, explore maybe how I could <laughs> better approach that. How do we, how do you break the circle if someone's just going to try to stay in? Yeah. yeah. Let's take that on. Let's take that on. I am noticing that we are at whatever minutes and we're at like slide number three or whatever. So this is going to be fun. This is going to be a lot of fun. I see 25 episodes here. I don't know about you. Um, I want to get to uh, maybe as far as what to try to accomplish today yet. I'd like to get to the slide that is what apologetics is not. For us, we've already said second Judas kiss from Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. We've already said not fides, but there's a couple more things. But first, going to credit uh, Luke Thompson again with a really useful distinction that is another way that would help the nervous Lutheran to find mm-hmm. his or her voice and be part of the conversation. So it goes like this. Um, we believe in what we call the hiddenness of God. And that could be a whole long story of its own. But one of the places that God hides is in people. Um, he hides behind the beauty of the created universe. He hides um, in what looks to other people as coincidences that really are not. It's his hidden hand moving. The main place he hides is in the 
the baby at Bethlehem in the, in the man on the cross, nothing looks less than glory than that. But the issue of seeing God hiding behind masks is that we can learn to make a really, really useful distinction between the things that we can investigate empirically mm-hmm. on the basis of evidence and those things that we have no business trying to verify with human reason. We can make that distinction. Um, so, for example, as we bring people into contact with the mask, let's say we talk about the design of the universe, which is really incredible argument. An incredible argument for the reality of God comes in from design and, in fact, the fact that the universe exists. So we bring people into contact with that mask of God, and there we can use reason, and there we can use empirical evidence to bring people to consider the one who is behind that mask, which is the God who reconciled himself to the world in Christ. At that point, the mask will suggest the Christian truth behind it, but at that point, our apologetic just turns to witness. So we look at the grandeur of the universe that speaks compellingly for the existence of someone who is beyond fathoming, and then transition to the witness to the one the Christian scriptures say is behind that mask. And now we're no longer, as I say, interested in the same kind of proving with evidence. Mm-hmm. Now we're testifying to the God who reconciled the world to himself in Christ. And so that distinction, what we can argue about in these terms, recent evidence, and what we have no business arguing for, where, where we just simply say, now the word of God is speaking, so let reason, let reason know its place. I think that's useful. Yeah, I think it's another way to open up a place where we can be comfortable that we're still talking like the apostles because they do this very thing. They can transition from something very historical, like the first verses of Luke 3, where he establishes the political role of like 10 people in a row. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is something verifiable. And then that winds up in, at that time in history, the word of God came, and now he's testifying to something that is beyond, or that we have certainty about in an, in an entirely different way. So tell me if that kind of made sense as I was trying to explain that yeah, distinction. It, will, it, it reminds me of uh, Paul in Athens, where they take, totally. he has the, you know, the unknown God. It's not even worth you know, trying to prove who the unknown God is. It's not, it's not, uh, you're not trying to use reason to arrive at that. And he's able to say, look, here's like those questions that we can't answer here. I can testify to that. I can show who that is. And maybe that's, maybe that's not quite the, the perfect, uh, analogy for what was going on or what you're trying to say. But the idea being that you're, you, you delineate, where you are testifying and where you are reasoning and mm-hmm. you can, you can draw boundaries between those. Yeah, no, that's, I hear what you're saying. I mean, you're responding kind of impromptu to that example, but I, but I think it still does work because there's a moment where Paul has been talking about what your own philosophers say about the reality of God. I mean, your own philosophers say this. And so that's mm-hmm. the natural knowledge of God. And we could talk about that all day long in terms of the evidence for that. But there mm-hmm. is a transition moment where suddenly it's, it's about repentance and resurrection. Yep. And that's when they kind of go bonkers on him. But, mm-hmm. yeah. but that's how the apostles talk. They, could, they talk both languages. And I find that useful. I, I just found it in front of me, the actual scripture I referred to before, Acts 26. 
which kind of fits here because what Paul says on trial is, I am not insane. Most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And the king is familiar and I can speak freely. Then he turns to the king and says, none of this has escaped your notice, uh, referring to the resurrection, because it wasn't done in a corner. Then he says, do you believe the prophets in Psalm 22 or Psalm 16 or you name it, you know? And so that is the way they speak. And so the other part of this, part of what I've learned in the last few years more recently is I no longer say the gospel is foolishness. What I say, to quote the verse properly in Romans, the gospel is foolishness, or First Corinthians, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's not foolishness, period. It actually is that mm-hmm. the Spirit helps us soar to a higher reasoning by faith. But it's where only Jesus person, true God, true man, only Jesus' resurrection after dying in our place. That's the only thing that makes sense. So it's a higher reason. Mm-hmm. It's not the absence of reason, not the rejection of reason. It's not It's not yeah. unreasonableness or irrationality. Far from it. Mm-hmm. It's clear thinking um, based on truth from the outside, as we say, truth revealed to us. I think I've, I've come across that in, in the conversations that I have with people where there comes a point where even in the you know the the reasonable conversation, I and mean, we'll talk specifically about this uh, when we get to the refutation uh, section or the objections mm-hmm. um, in an episode or two, uh, where you know trying to reconcile the logical consistency of omniscience, omnipotence, and uh, omnibenevolence, and then at a certain point there comes a part of the conversation where I have no choice but to appeal to someone outside of the, you know, the realms of our universe <laughs> that doesn't, isn't bound by the time that the way that we are, who isn't bound by, you know, our concept of any of these totally. things. And so, uh, there comes a point where that's, that's where the conversation goes. And maybe that's, maybe that's where the crux of where that conversation was, was, you know, are you allowed to appeal for things outside? Or maybe that's something I can be more explicit about in the future is that there are things beyond our comprehension that you can make an appeal to. And if that's off bounds, then that's just the conversation goes in a, in a different direction. Yeah. I hadn't thought about this for a long time. Let me just try. Kierkegaard has a thing he calls, he calls prophetic irony. And so he's talking, talking about how do the prophets in the old Testament testify? They say, this is what the Lord says. And it's ironic because they kind of are refusing to ground their truth the way everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody else tends to be typically blind about their presuppositions. Um, one person has said, you don't know you have presuppositions until you talk to someone who doesn't have the same ones. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that impasse that you're at, at that moment. And so the prophets, if you say... The prophet says, thus says the Lord, and you disagree. They're just going to tell you to repent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're not going to go to some other place to argue for what they just said. Mm-hmm. They speak for God, and they refuse to do that. So it's called prophetic irony because it sort of undermines the grounding of truth and the way that others think they can do it when they truly can't. Yeah. And so well, you triggered for me one of our fathers, I think it was uh, um, August Pieper, so it's not like we haven't been talking about apologetics for for a long time. We just haven't had a big, um, a loud voice in this area, in the church at large. But he just simply said, whoever wants to testify for Christ, this is first. He must first be a fool. So that is the willingness to 
appear as a fool in front of the eyes of the world. Now, we just said was you're not actually a fool. Mm-hmm. The gospel isn't foolishness, period. It's foolishness for those that don't believe it. But, mm-hmm. but there is that willingness to appear as a fool that I think is what happens at that moment when I just have to testify. That's where we are right now. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you that Jesus is the Savior of the world and you're lost without him. Why would you be? Why would you be lost? Because you can be found, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I, <clears throat> going full circle, though, we still can do way better than fideism. Yeah, we can do way better than that. Yeah, um, there's a lot we can get into. Like, for example, Luke, the Gospel writer Luke, being a world class historian. Yeah, world class, accused by historians of habitual accuracy. I mean, what he, what he got right is astonishing. Yeah. F.F. Bruce dedicated almost a chapter to that. I think he did. Which yeah. was which was uh, the the one that that really rang a bell for me was apparently Oxford titles are really really uh, nuanced or like the your professor of this or the I, I can't remember I don't even remember the titles <laughs> off my head but there's a very specific right. situations in which you use them and if you're in that type of academia. And you're fluent in that, it will be, ju- it will just click. You'll know which ones to use because you've been there before. And the way that he refers to yeah. the ancient Roman, you know, titles that various, you know, prefectures and, uh, you know, all of the, all of the titles yeah, yeah, that yeah. he it, never wrong. And, and it's, uh, yeah, hab- habitually accurate <laughs> in terms of, in terms <laughs> of historians. Um, uh, yeah. Oh gosh. He gets, he gets the atmosphere right of Jerusalem yeah. and Athens and Rome and Corinth. I, I can't speak so to the I can't exciting. speak to it personally, but apparently his account of the shipwreck with Paul uh is right. a, a large amount of what we know about navigating the Mediterranean Sea at that time is because of that account, how accurate it was and how they were able to, you know, navigate in the area was of all of the places that you'd find in ancient text where, where you'd think that this would be the authority of, of navigation in the Mediterranean, you find it in Luke. You find it in Acts. It, yeah. There's something like this in both Testaments. So in the Old Testament, is if you are the kind of scholar to argue for a late date of Exodus, well, then nothing works archaeologically. Mm-hmm. Where you find things, nothing fits. If you would just accept the biblical claim in first Kings six, you get a date of fourteen forty six BC. And then everything works. <laughs> everything starts mm-hmm. to fall into place archaeologically. The same thing as Luke, New Testament times is until scholars began to take Luke seriously as a historian, there were just puzzles and mysteries and quandaries that he resolves. And so yeah, there's no nothing we're afraid of discussing as a Christian. There's no there's no Achilles heel. And so I thought maybe we'd finish this conversation. I'm looking at the slide I mentioned, what apologetics is not, and we've talked about most of it. We're not fideous, mm-hmm. just got to believe, now we can do mm-hmm. better. We're not smuggling in a a secular view of reason by, apolog- by um, making claims for Christ that really are making claims for a reason that we don't buy. We're not trying to make the gospel reasonable. We're saying that something unreasonable actually happened historically. And we're not trying to find some other way than to use the Word of God. And the last one on my list is called theodicy. So jump in, John. Uh, I'll just start start it out. Theodicy is defending the ways of God to men. 
So can God be defended for allowing this or that to happen? That's where Martin Luther would roll in his grave or if he was alive, say blasphemy. Who do you think you are coming to God's defense by your wonderful powers Mm -hmm. of reason? So the way Kierkegaard gets at that is he says, even having the conversation in those terms would allow your relationship with God to, to slip into something else, to slip out of the relationship of love and trust. My example I've written some places, you want to talk to me about my bride, is she faithful to me or not? Um, no, we're not going to have a, some sort of dispassionate conversation mm-hmm. about that. Because to even entertain that thought as I talk to you would would be to change that relationship because I love her and I mm-hmm. trust her. Right. And so we're just not interested in that. It's not that I won't talk to you about whatever those issues of theodicy are, what, hell, the problem of pain. We'll talk about those things as long as you need to, my skeptical mm-hmm. friend, but not in those terms. Yeah. Not, not in that tone, not in that way. Got a thought on that? I have an example or, or two. Let's go to that, and then I'll, I'll have one. A, another section to go to as we wrap this up. Yeah, okay. So <clears throat> here's a, a way I like to approach the problem of suffering that is, that is meant to be different in spirit than theodicy. Here I am defending God's ways. Um, it's a story from a famous psychologist and radio personality, uh, James Dobson. And he writes about he had a son who was four years old, and he had a terrible earache. He takes the boy to see the doctor, and the doctor gets frustrated with the boy because every time he goes into the ear with an instrument, the boy just howls in pain and explodes. And the doctor mm-hmm. comes out to the waiting room to get the father. So you got to come in and hold your kid down. So Dobson talked with some emotion about being in the examining room he is behind his son holding him from behind and the the doctor goes into the boy's ear with the instrument and again the boy just howls in pain and then their eyes meet in the mirror and in front of them and the boy's eyes are screaming how can you do this to me right how can you how can you let mm-hmm. this happen to me and dobson said again with kind of choking on this he just said i realize there's no way to explain to the satisfaction of a four-year-old why this pain. He just simply is not capable of understanding it. And so it gets mm-hmm. to a, a view of that the resurrection of the death and resurrection of Jesus is the holding of us. It's the, it's the answer in his, in his embrace of us as sinners. And it could be that the answer to, for, is beyond us as well. We just can't, are not capable of grasping it. It could be that the answer wouldn't help us, where he's mm-hmm. taking us to that place of, of love and trust in the Savior who loved us and died for us. But it's what the holding means is that whatever the answer is, God is not indifferent. He's not indifferent. And by the, by the pained face of the Father to the Son, he's not indifferent. In fact, in Jesus, mm-hmm. he's found a way to make our disaster completely his own. Did not remain at a distance from it, but suffered more than anybody else has or ever could. And so it's a way to talk about the, the hard question of suffering without playing the role of, of God's defender in that other kind of way. Yeah. And so what I'm always looking for, and we'll get to that conversation about objections, is those kind of answers. And, and, and I've got more, but this is pretty good for now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, that's the appeal, right? Is the, to the four-year-old mm-hmm. who's seeing his father holding him 
and he has this excruciating pain and he sees his father's face and does it satisfy? Does it make the pain okay? Nope. No, but you know, there, there is an appeal that my father cares for me. Exactly right. And, exactly and right. that's, that's what we have in terms of how we can, that's the appeal to the outside, to the things that we can't understand and that we can't, we can't exactly reason for. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible for that to happen. doesn't mean that that's, you know, outside of the bounds of a reasonable conversation. Yeah. And so I would tie this together with the fact that we're not supplanting the word of God. What I mean is that I never, ever want to assume that a person who is questioning based on suffering knows a biblical theology of suffering. We just can't assume they know Mm -hmm. any of it. And so... Part of my mm-hmm. answer is going to be to lay that out. Here's where we believe suffering yeah. comes from. Here's what God does unique, unique, uniquely through it. Here is God on the cross making it his own. And the questions kind of change when you see that. And they also yeah. change in view of eternity. Looking back on this one day from, from a place of complete yeah. restoration and seeing all that God mm-hmm. has done. And so just like I will often say in apologetics, we don't distinguish it from witnessing because we can't ever assume people know what the gospel is. Can't assume they know what mm-hmm. it is. And so that's why it has to include or get to ultimately testimony with crystal clarity about Jesus is the son of God <laughs> and, and, mm-hmm. and both true God and true man in one person. And here's what he did yep. across his lifetime. That's his righteousness. Here's, here's how he suffered and here's why. That our witness yep. has to include that because um, the the sort of biblical illiteracy and flat ignorance of that is not going mm-hmm. away you know, not anytime yeah. soon and so I remember yeah no, I like ahead. that I like that it's the I mean going back to the the kid looking at his father in the mirror you can look at scripture and it'd be hard to make an argument that God doesn't care about humanity right. or that he doesn't recognize the suffering that's there and that he didn't do Quite a lot to to address that. Yeah, quite a lot. Exactly. <laughs> I was trying to think about <laughs> quite a lot. That, yeah, that's uh, so ineffable, ineffable. <laughs> I mean, it's where you're at in life, too. I'm at a place where I just don't expect yeah. things to make sense as far mm-hmm. as I can explain why this or that happened. I, I just no longer have that expectation. This world has fallen and it's awful. And Chesterton said, anything you bring me as evidence for God doesn't exist, I'll give that same thing right back to you as evidence for a fallen world that's with a fractured relationship with the one who made it. And so, yeah, I remember there's a story from Ravi Zacharias, famous apologist. He's visiting Auschwitz and touring Auschwitz, and the tour guide has her arms wide open, Jewish lady, but her arms are wide open the whole time she talks to him and says, how do you explain all this? And while her arms are still wide open, Zechariah talked to her about, well, uh, I think it was Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our transgressions. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for iniquity and so on. And explained um, what the Messiah is doing in Isaiah 53. And her answer was, was still with arms wide out, was simply to say, how come nobody told me that about mm-hmm. my Messiah? So that's what's so compelling to mm-hmm. me. How come nobody told me? And so our apologetic will include yeah. telling people 
you know, what's at stake when they raise your objection? What we're really, what is really our true subject when it comes to that yeah. conversation? So this is an approach that doesn't, doesn't set aside witness or scripture. That's yeah. inter- That's interesting too. That the you know standing there with arms wide open, just why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell mm-hmm. me? It almost speaks to like there's a a yearning for some sort of meaning in all of this. That's of course there know, is. Cure, it has uh, to be. You know, specifically human. Like we are built to yearn and find meaning in things. Mm-hmm. We're meaning making. Is is that? I think that might be stealing thunder from our next conversation. <laughs> we are like meaning making animals. That is a very communication oriented. I think that might be. Yeah, that would said. I, good idea. We'll be, yeah, we'll have to find. We'll have to maybe we pick up there. Or something. Yeah. But the uh, yeah, there's just a a deep pining for for something. We 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 worship things. And if that thing isn't God, then it leads you into a place where you're still left wanting more. Yeah, one, one writer, maybe to tie a bow on this, potentially then have some dessert. This has been a great, mm-hmm. great, uh, great meal. Um, Tullian Tavichian writes, the last idol to fall is the idol of explanation, which means mm. that I will trust in God when he's explained everything to my satisfaction. Nope. Nope, that's mm-hmm. an idol. I'm knocking that one over. Um, I will trust him. In the way Job did, though he slay me, I will trust him. And that's where we put Christ at the center of this. That will not make sense to you until you see the Son of God go through what he goes through. And if you'd been the only one, he would still have done it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's our that's wow, our like ground that. zero. That's our resting place with the all last, these questions. The last false God is the one of explanation. Yep, yep, yep. Hey, so is... I do have one last uh, oh, go. Whatever. looking at the notes that are in front of us. I see this concept of a defeater, and I'm not sure if we've covered that in different terms or if. I think that is what will lead well into either the next episode or into the matter of handling objections because. I see. Okay. Let me give you the one sentence definition. Defeater sure. is yeah. something in the skeptic's mind that is unexamined. It just feels self-evidently true. Mm-hmm. And if that thing is true, then Christ isn't true. And so I, I think of that, that the term is from Tim Keller, who is not without his flaws. He's in heaven now. Um, but I think that's exactly what Second Corinthians 10 is talking about when it talks about demolishing strongholds and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. I think that's exactly what this is talking about. Something in your mind that is a stronghold against the truth of Jesus. And that context says we have to take every thought captive to Christ. Mm-hmm. So defeater is a way, a defeater is a way to think about that. If that thing that you never even looked at or thought about, if that's true, then like that a loving God could not send someone to hell. Mm-hmm. If that's true, then Christ can't be true. I see. So that's one of the top examples in our, in our culture. And we'll talk about though defeaters change from time and place. Mm-hmm. So that's not a defeater. That that issue of hell is not a defeater in every place. Mm-hmm. In other places, you'd say the fact that God is just, is completely just in the end, is what keeps me from losing my mind because of the violence that I live with every day. So it's not a defeater in that place like it might be here. And so yeah. there are others much like that. But Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll but sure I think to, that's part of the larger conversation that's still to come. We'll be sure to touch up on those in that in that larger conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. On to dessert then. Yeah. Got room for more? I think I. As I push the there's dessert. There's a second stomach by. for dessert, isn't there? 
yes, there is. <laughs> there is at my house. <laughs> there there wasn't when I was a kid, but <laughs> I get to, I make the rules now. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I do. I do have something. So I've been, um, if you wanted to know just how weird I am. Oh, I do. Here's yeah. my, my latest uh, intrigue is uh, I'm set on befriending the magpies that frequent my balcony. <laughs> and so I am, I am trying everything. <laughs> I saw, I saw one land up there once oh. a while ago and I was You're like, making me sad, John, a little bit sad, but, s- but keep going. Sad. Why, why is that? <laughs> Are you in need of a friend? Is that what? <laughs> no, I just, and anything will do. No, <laughs> I will, uh, actually, yeah, we can keep painting that picture. That's great. Uh, <laughs> No, it's just uh, I think it'd be cool to have have some magpie friends. If I could, I remember I had a I had a little parakeet uh, that was uh, it was my roommate's parakeet when I lived in Apple Valley, and there was a time when I had established enough trust with the parakeet that it would fly to my finger, and then I could you know mm-hmm. feed it and we could play. He was like bobbing his head as I'm playing guitar, sitting on my shoulder, that kind of, of thing. Course. And I was like. I wonder if I could do that. So it's more like a challenge to myself than a you know, oh, desire for a a friend. I forget magpies. Do they talk? Are they loud? I, they I just they do have a little bit of a squawk. I, I was looking up um, the. I was trying to look up what their vocalizations are to see if there, anyone mm-hmm. had codified that. And unfortunately, the thing I regret most about not being in the academic world anymore is that I don't have access to all of the you know, $150 paywall journals that these things are published in. Yeah. So uh, maybe I'll sure. ask for a favor now and again. But uh, the, um, <laughs> I, I can tell when they're sounding an alarm. And then I think that's what most people hear of them. It's just, just like, rah, 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 rah. you know, I'm, I'm coming, mm. you know, something's up. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But they also, when they are more comfortable, they'll, they have like a coup and like a little click. It's like a very pleasant, like, you can tell it's like the bird just saying like, I'm pleased with myself, <laughs> which is, I think like you just don't, a lot of people don't get that because it's rather quiet in comparison. And so I think they have a bad reputation of being protective of their nests, if that could be a bad reputation, yeah. but they will, they will, you know, if you are intruding on its territory and identifies you as a threat, it will swoop on you. Especially, I think the magpies in Australia are like that. Um, these ones, I'm just trying to, ironically I have a dog and dog food is actually the closest thing to their natural you know, opportunistic omnivore diet. It's the same type of, you know, content makeup that they'd be finding on, you know, the scraps that they, they find around. Mm. And so I'll just have a, you know, I'll have a couple dog treats out on the balcony and I'm getting them now. I've had, I've had four at a time that are up there and I'm just like, Hey, how's it going? And soon <laughs> then we'll just like, we'll just keep moving the food closer to where I am. And then uh, hopefully we'll have we'll have some some friends that sit on the shoulder as I am having meetings. <laughs> <laughs> well, as somebody who somebody who doesn't speak magpie, I'm looking forward to your journey, and I hope that you will <laughs> keep us informed. <laughs> the bird whisperer, you are the bird whisperer. <laughs> oh, my my dessert was going to be. Just a mention of this. I have a former student who's in the Philippines, and he was at a bookstore in the Philippines and found one of my books. 
<laughs> randomly. <laughs> in the was it translated there, or was it? it just yeah, in, no, just in English, English. English, yeah, just there it was. So, <laughs> my dad used to say, you know, writing is a way to serve, and mm-hmm. you never know where the writing's going to go. You're not in control of that, and like I did get a literally tear-stained letter from a pastor saying he'd read my article on drinking your cup to his bride mm-hmm. as, as she died or shortly before she died. And so that's kind of what that kind of brings to mind is this randomness yeah. of some book, yeah. you know, out there. <laughs> Who knows what journey that book took. But, but uh, you reminded me of this as a, if I can be, whatever the word is, and have a second piece of dessert. Um, I've had some back trouble recently, and it was mm. really bad. I haven't had this for years, but it ceased yeah. up in front of my students. I got through the class, and the next morning I just couldn't even move, couldn't teach, couldn't do anything. And so, I mean, that's gotten better. But my chiropractor is this fine Mormon gentleman, and his wife is wonderful too. They're just great to chat with. I've gone probably mm-hmm. six times already in the last couple of weeks just to really – get at this thing but yeah he's easy to talk to so we've already talked about um boy I, he said to me i just don't know if i've done enough i just don't know if i've done enough and so mm-hmm. i just one of my kids said dad this is why you have back trouble <laughs> this is the reason <laughs> <laughs> yeah and of course wouldn't put put it past god to do that <laughs> and i'm yeah. and i'm willing so yeah, yeah maybe that's why it got better but came back i don't know Mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyway, there's my dessert. It's there's it's a wonderful, wonderful couple. Um, just as friendly as I'll get out. And yeah. So man, it's been a while since I've uh, dove into the the doctrine of Mormonism. I haven't. I have. It's been a minute since I've examined what they actually believe. Yeah, you just you just get such conflicting messages. The mm-hmm. typical Mormon will hear you say to them what they believe, and they will say no. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I don't know what that is. Is that ignorance of actual theology? Yeah. I think it probably is. Because it's but they, what supports also that? What that, makes that happen? You know, the Church of Latter Day Saints is that synonymous, or is that sure. a separate? That same thing. Yep. The same thing. Yeah. yeah, I think I remember there was. You know, they can say things that use the same words but they mean something different Very, yeah, that's to them the so it will sound like a it'll sound like salvation son of god yeah i believe Redemption. that jesus died to save us from our sins re- redeemed us and, exactly. and it really what they're saying is something else when you it, ask them what that means that will turn into something completely different right so the example of me saying here's what you believe as i understand it and them saying no is this famous sentence as as man is, God once was, as God is, man will be. And so the the main issue, or one of the first issues, has to do with who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, son of God, himself God, small g, capital G. Does that not get at it, maybe? But that's an important part of the question. The other thing I... Remember a conversation when I was a missionary with a Mormon family, and the thing I said randomly without thinking much about it that really hit them hard, not that they converted, but the question of why I was at their door, and the question of why do I serve and obey God, and the answer I gave was because I want to, 
I, I want to. Mm-hmm. And this hit them so hard <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to do these things. And not because you have to, not because you're compelled to, mm-hmm. or not because salvation is somehow at stake. It, it was just unfathomable mm-hmm. to them. And so I just kind of stumbled onto that one as far as a thing yeah. to talk about. Because I, I have learned over the years that these people, like a lot of people, carry some heavy, heavy burdens. There's a reason they're at your door, and it's not, it's not all sweetness and light. Yeah. It's not, it's not a grateful response to the free gift of salvation by literally God the Son dying on the cross. Mm-hmm. That's not what they have. I don't know what they do have. And I think yeah. I can get comfortable enough with uh, with Jim, you know, my, my chiropractor. Mm-hmm. To, and he spends time with me, too. So mm-hmm. it's not like I can't bring something up that's substantive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like to think of it as like God wrote me a blank check. And he said, here's a whole checkbook. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> it will never go empty. Of forgiveness. <laughs> I signed all of them. Give them out. You know, <laughs> that's it's like... What would you do? You know, you 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 only need one for yourself. You already have that. And of course, it's, it's the a, great the great risk yeah, of risk of faith that we will not take that and make it a blank check to sin, right? Yeah. God forbid we do that, but mm-hmm. that there's an inexhaustible supply of forgiveness. Is yeah, I, I get you. But to compare that to the probably it sounds like fear is the response. It's like I have to do this, or or else. Or, sure, uh, fear like at the bottom I'm a prison of prison to these, uh, yeah. you know, these demands that God is making of me has to be fear like hiding a, behind obligation, yeah. religious obligation. Yeah, that can only be what it is. And you know, the whole the whole thing that drives you is I'd like to free, I'd like God to free you from this by the words that I say. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a good piece of dark chocolate right there. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to be well, thinking why dark chocolate, but that can be for another day. Oh, it's just a very rich, a very rich, okay, a very, very rich uh, mouthful at the end of a, of a long meal. <laughs> okay. So now empty calories that time. Yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> so, so good yeah, to be is, at it again, a, John. Yeah, it is so, so good. good. Yeah. I've been, unfortunately, you know, to be transparent to the audience, we've had a few technical difficulties over recording this episode. Uh, my computer uh, sometimes shuts off and we have to redo parts of it, but I've been systematically saving at intermittent points. And then I'm going to be, you know, future me is going to be editing this together <laughs> into a way that hopefully sounds like a, a, a uninterrupted conversation. Um, but uh, one thing that I won't have to do is fabricate an awkward ending. Wait. <laughs> oh, I love doing these. I'll see you in a few days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's he talking about? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, okay.